0: You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Ask Concussion Doc episode 57. Currently in vacation mode. This is why we're doing it on this day rather than Wednesday, which we normally do it. Um, i The reason is I just finished up the CCMI course. The course, for those that don't know, is meant for healthcare practitioners, whether it's uh, medical doctors, physiotherapists, chiropractors, uh, ATs, OTs, etc. Healthcare providers um, along the spectrum, and it's an insane amount of work to put this all together. Basically, we have to compile all the evidence that we do each week. So we do a, um, a, um, a review of all the evidence every single week. We compile that at the end of every month, put that into monthly research updates, and then that information, uh, after a year, we run by our entire medical advisory board and we decide on what is important enough to be included in our evidence-based course. So it usually takes me about a month to compile it all, and then once it's all compiled, we gotta put it into the modules, and then once the modules are done, we then have to record it and film it, and then update it into our course site and stuff. So we do this every single year, and then generally after that, I'm wiped out and I try to take some time off to (laughs) recuperate and get my mind, uh, you know, at ease, reset. Um, So the course is now up and ready for all of you that have been waiting to do it. The course is now um, ready to go. It is 40 hours of content, it's very heavy, but the whole goal of complete concussion management, CCMI, has been from day one to create experts in the concussion field, right? we are only as good and we can only help as many people as we have good clinics out there. So we need clinicians who know their shit. If we have clinicians that don't know their shit, then we're not gonna be able to help patients, right? The only way to help patients is to truly you know know your shit. If you know a little bit of shit, <laughs> you can't necessarily help people uh, the way that you could if you knew all of it, okay? so you're likely more dangerous than helpful unless you kind of understand all of that. So our goal the entire time throughout all of this has been to make sure that our clinicians, you know, know their shit cold. And we have, that's why there's so much content in there. So those of you who have been waiting for it, uh, it's now complete. You can go to completeconcussions.com slash clinic and you'll see our clinic partnership program and you'll be able to read all about the course and stuff like that. That should be a tagline for us. CCMI, clinicians who know their shit. <laughs> Okay, topics for today's podcast, Uh, I wanted to go live, I wanted to do this, Uh, I'm only here for today and then I'm gone again so um, I wanted to uh, make sure I got this done. So a number of you wrote in on our stories as well as on our posts about different topics that you wanted to hear from us and so today we have three. Number one is autonomic dysregulation, this one has been asked a few times. Um, it's it's a vague topic. It's really deep, but I'll do my best to try and kind of synthesize it for you. Second question was about hyperbaric oxygen and whether or not it's effective, and the third question was about creatine supplementation following uh, concussion. So those are three topics we're going to talk about today. I will start with numero uno. Autonomic dysregulation and post concussion syndrome. So the autonomic nervous system are all of your autonomic functions. So things that are done automatically. So the ability for your heart to beat a certain uh, way, the ability for your breathing to happen automatically, the ability uh, for you know various things to go around your body in terms of signaling and things like that, okay? So it's an autonomic thing, it happens without you having to think about it or control it. You have two different ones. You have your sympathetic system, which is your, what they call it, the fight or flight mechanism. This is your, um, you know, a bear is chasing you and you have to run away. So what happens is your pupils dilate, your heart rate increases, your breathing rate increases, and you go. That's your sympathetic system. Your parasympathetic system is what's called your rest and digest. This is your chill system. So this is when your heart rate is nice and low and you don't have to run away from a bear. These two systems are in balance with each other, at least they should be. If your sympathetic is high, your parasympathetic is low. If your parasympathetic is high, your sympathetic system is low. So they're always in balance. And the thing that's been studied in concussion is generally through heart rate variability because heart rate variability is um, the way that your heart rate fluctuates uh, minute to minute, second to second type of thing. And even though if you put a heart rate monitor on and you check your heart rate and your pulse, it'll give you your, uh, a, a, a rate of beats per minute. So you say, let's say normal heart rate is 72 beats per minute. But within each of those beats, it's actually speeding up and slowing down throughout that one minute cycle. So even though over a minute you get 72 maybe give or take throughout each of those beats and cycles it's actually speeding up a little bit two beats are a little bit closer then the next two are a little bit spaced out and typically heart rate variability is a sign of fitness and it's a sign of health people that are healthy and in good shape have high heart rate variability your heart rate variability wants to be high and it responds to things like even the way you breathe in. So if everyone just takes their pulse right now, and you can try this with me, you take your pulse right now, and when you breathe in, take a deep breath in, your heart rate should speed up. And then when you breathe out, you'll notice that your heart rate slows down. So this happens throughout that one minute cycle. So this is happening all the time, we don't know it. So that's, this is what's called heart rate variability, and this is a sign of your autonomic nervous system function. After concussion injury, we know that heart rate variability is lowered. So we have, we generally have a high resting heart rate, and because we have a high sympathetic drive. So following concussion, our autonomic nervous system gets out of balance where we have high sympathetic low parasympathetic. This generally results in things like uh, high morning resting heart rate, reduced heart rate variability, and heart rate variability also helps to control, uh, or sorry, your autonomic nervous system also controls breathing rate. Breathing rate and heart rate variability uh, can affect the cerebral vascular mechanism. So now you get reduced blood flow to the brain, or at least unresponsive blood flow to the brain where you're not getting the same fluctuations that you should. Um, that's a whole other topic to get into, but basically your systemic blood flow, and, uh, or sorry, your cerebral blood flow is meant to be consistent no matter how much change is happening systemically. Your brain always wants the same amount of blood coming into it to compensate for the activity that it's doing if you have these fluctuations in how you're breathing and your heart rate variability your cerebrovascular mechanisms become compromised and you're not able to cons- contain that or maintain that consistent blood flow way so we have effects at our breathing rate okay sympathetic nervous system it uh, so affects our cerebrovascular accommodation. It affects our tolerance to exercise. So when we start exercising, oftentimes people with concussion or post-concussion syndrome will notice that their symptoms get worse when they do any type of physical activity or cognitive activity. This is generally related to a blood flow issue or an autonomic nervous system dysfunction where you're not able to regulate the proper amount of blood to your brain. So if you start exercising and your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, Uh, systemically, but your brain can't accommodate that, you're going to have an increase in your symptoms. Now this is all potentially related to autonomic nervous system dysfunction. A lot of the research that's been done and this has been pioneered by the University of Buffalo. And this is where you get into exercise testing, exertional testing, using a treadmill, there's a specific protocol to follow. And the treatment often for this is exercise done in a steady state cardio sub-symptom threshold way so you find out at what point you start to become symptomatic and we want you to exercise but we don't want you to exercise up here we want you to exercise down here so that you're doing something you're pushing yourself a little bit but you're not exceeding what your threshold is and this is the mistake that a lot of concussion patients make they've heard that exercise is beneficial, but yet when they go out and exercise their symptoms get worse which then makes them say, well I don't want to do that anymore because that makes my symptoms worse. And they, Some of them will just keep pushing through and that's the wrong approach and others will completely withdraw and that's also the wrong approach. What you need to do is have a qualified person do and administer this type of testing for you so that you know where you're at, what your threshold is and then you can start working on that. So that's always the first step of this. Other impacts from the sympathetic, parasympathetic, dysregulation, anxiety, and mood, and also sleep disturbances. Now, ways to uh, reduce sympathetic and increase parasympathetic. I also I mentioned the number one, which is exercise in a subsymptom threshold way. Uh, number two is what a lot of people are told to do, which is just relaxation. They're told to meditate. They're told to take it easy. Don't go to work, don't stress, don't do anything. But, for most people, the fact that you're not able to work and do anything makes you more stressed and more anxious. So that one is difficult for people to generally do, but if you can, meditation, yoga, uh, that type of stuff, any type of relaxation activity, hanging out with friends, that's great for relaxation. It gets your mind off of it and it calms the nervous system down. Overstimulation can make things a little bit worse sometimes. Exercise, like I said, is number one. And the lastly, one that you can start trying to do is breathing exercises. So there's a thing called biofeedback or neurofeedback where you're hooked up to all sorts of monitors and you're looking at a screen of some kind to give you feedback on what you're doing and what its effect is having. And so a particular study that that I'm gonna discuss here is they were looking at heart rate variability and breathing rates. And so you're hooked up to a heart rate monitor and the goal was to achieve the highest heart rate variability possible. And and they would try to do this with their breathing rate. So as they're breathing in, they're looking at a monitor and they're looking at what their heart rate variability actually is. And so by changing your breathing rate, you're getting instantaneous feedback as to what's that what that's doing with your heart rate variability. And what they found in those studies across, I can't remember how many people, but They found that the best breathing rate to improve heart rate variability, so there's a little nugget for you guys right now, the best breathing rate to improve heart rate variability is breathing between four and six times each minute. So that's a very slow down breathing rate. Just by breathing slow, and there's another thing called box breathing, you may have heard of that, and that's an anxiety, trick for people and it's the similar process right your box breathing is you breathe in for four breathe out for or hold it for four breathe out for four and then hold that for four and keep doing that in kind of a box type scenario this is a little bit easier not paying attention to the box or holding your breath or anything like that try to get yourself to a breathing rate of four to six breaths per minute so this is something you would do in a relaxation state you'd maybe sit down you may want to meditate as you're doing this and you breathe out of four to six breaths per minute and try to slow that down. Because what that does is it kicks up your sympathetic and it reduces your parasympathetic. This will improve blood flow, reduce anxiety, and all the other things that high sympathetic drive tends to do. Hyperbaric oxygen is uh, basically it's a it's a tube and it's pressurized and people go in the tube and they'll pump it up so that it's not like atmospheric air I think is what 23 percent oxygen or something like that hyperbaric they'll pump it up to 100 percent oxygen and they'll actually pressurize the tube so that um, you know it's higher than atmospheric pressure so that it, it it's supposed to infuse greater than uh, if it was just at atmospheric low or low pressure environments so. Hyperbaric is used for a number of different conditions, and it's been used in more severe brain injuries uh, for its ability to potentially repair neural tissue or repair, I know they do it for like wound healing and things like that. Um, So the idea is that increasing the metabolic rate by providing more oxygen in a pressurized format can increase healing and speed recovery and things like that. The problem is even though there's some evidence to support it when you get into more severe brain injuries, when you get into concussion, we don't necessarily have any actual focal damage that's been done. So that might be what the issue is. I know that there's a number of clinics opening up offering hyperbaric oxygen therapy as a treatment for concussion. Uh, I think there's one here in Toronto that's called The Concussion Clinic, and it's just hyperbaric oxygen. However, The research on this for concussion, specifically mild traumatic brain injuries, has found that hyperbaric oxygen therapy is no better than placebo. There's actually, you know, most of the time when we talk about evidence, we say there's not enough evidence yet to support a certain thing. In this particular case, we actually have quite a bit of evidence that shows that it's not effective. So there's the distinguishing thing. A lot of people will swear by hyperbaric. A lot of people will say, I did hyperbaric and it really helped me. I feel really great when I get out of it. However, the research shows that that's the placebo effect. Placebo is a very real thing, right? You can make people get better with a sugar pill if they believe that what they're getting is effective. So in terms of hyperbaric, however, when you control the trials properly, you find that it's no better than a sham or surface air. I'm going to talk about the studies on this so there's been five or six studies that have been done on it and the only positive study that i've found had a flaw in how it was designed so when you're doing a study if you give somebody the intervention and you give this group no intervention no matter what the intervention is just by the sheer nature that you're changing something for these people over here that are getting the intervention they will get better. That's placebo effect, potentially. Because if you're giving nothing to these people, well, nothing's changed. So they're gonna not get better. So in the one study that I found that shows positive effect of hyperbaric oxygen, what they did is they gave this group, they put them in the tube, they gave them hyperbaric oxygen, this group got nothing. And guess what, this group showed benefit. This group did not. Then they crossed them over. So the group that was getting nothing now gets hyperbaric. They get better. Now the group that's no longer getting hyperbaric no longer gets better, right? Because you've now just changed things. Now are they getting better because of the hyperbaric or are they getting better because they're in this fancy tube where there's all these bells and whistles going off and they get to sit in there for an hour. And the protocol, by the way, is generally an hour a day for 40 straight days. It's expensive. It's very expensive. All right, now here's some better studies on it. Sifu um, 2013, they had three groups and what they did is they had 40 treatments, an hour per treatment for 40 straight days and everybody was put into the tube. They just changed the dosage within the tube. Some people got just surface air, so they basically put them in the fancy tube and they don't know it, but they're just breathing normal air and there's no pressure behind it. So that's called surface air. Then they gave group, I don't have the actual groups here, but then they gave another group, um, let's say 80% oxygen at you know two atmospheric pressures. Then they gave group three 100% oxygen at three atmospheric pressures. And guess what? All three groups got better, but they didn't get better than each other. So just the mere fact of being in the tube and getting a sham treatment was beneficial. That's the placebo effect. So hyperbaric by itself, like getting 100% oxygen at three atmospheric pressures over here, was no better than just sitting in a tube and getting atmospheric normal pressure air. Wolf, 2012, found the exact same thing. When you do a double-blind, randomized control trial, no significant difference on symptoms or neurocognitive performance after 30 treatments at 100% oxygen and 2.4 atmospheric pressures versus getting just a sham treatment, where you're in the tube, but it's breathing normal air. Uh, another one, Cfu again, 2014, same thing, no difference between sham or surface air. Dong. 2018, hyperbaric oxygen has no significant effect on PCS compared with sham treatments. So again, placebo is a big thing and if you don't have properly controlled placebo trials, you're going to have problems, right? So a lot of people say, I did hyperbaric and I swear by it, I feel better when I get out. That is placebo taking effect because you don't have good controls. You're going in as an N of one, going into the tube And what this study shows that they don't even have to turn the thing on and you'll feel better when you come out just because there's been some sort of intervention. So that's the problem with hyperbaric. Okay. And actually what this led to is the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation put out its most recent guidelines for persistent symptoms and they actually said with level A evidence it is not recommended to use hyperbaric oxygen therapy to treat post concussion symptoms. So not only is we don't know enough yet, it's actually we know enough to say that you shouldn't do it because it's not effective, all right? Hyperbaric oxygen. Any questions on that one? No questions. I'm sure I'm gonna piss off a lot of people with that one. All right. Question number three, creatine supplementation. So for this one to make sense for people we'll have to review pathophysiology, I mean I don't have to go into full pathophysiology but we'll have to talk about it a little bit creatine supplementation what creatine does generally it's used in bodybuilding and athletics the reason is because it increases your phosphocreatine stores which allows you which is an energy source which allows you to pump out another couple sets so when you're training or competing having creatine in your system allows more energy to be utilized so let's say I'm doing my bench press and I can get to 10 reps Well, if I have sufficient creatine load, I might be able to get 12, because I have another little energy store that gets me another couple reps, which then is why it's been used a lot in bodybuilding, weightlifting type sports. It's now being used in a lot of other sports, obviously just people in athletics, because it increases energy storage. Pathophysiology for concussion, what concussion ultimately results in, so concussion injury happens, you get an excitatory phase that happens, you get massive increase in neural firing, and then you get a breakdown of the mitochondria within the cell so you don't get the same amount of production of energy your ATP stores start to plummet over the next few days ATP is our energy creatine essentially creates ATP so now here you are with lowered ATP so the thought became what if we were to supplement creatine could we boost ATP stores and help speed the recovery of the concussion injury, because this is temporary, right? You get this shutdown of mitochondria, but it's not permanent, it comes back, right? It's just that they're kind of offline for a little bit, a little bit dysfunctional, but they gradually pump out that calcium that's been affecting them, and they gradually kind of restore and come back online, and then you're back to you know full function. So the idea was, what if we were to supplement with creatine? Could we speed that process? And so there's been a couple trials and the most that I've seen has been done on animals. I haven't seen any human trials, and the last that I've heard, there was a couple that were underway, uh, I think it was in California. So I'm still kind of waiting on the evidence on the human trials, but the animal trials that have been done have been quite promising. The only thing I will say with creatine is that it requires some loading to get your stores up to a point. So generally, people will supplement with about five grams per day. Typically with creatine, it's just kind of a maintenance dose. But oftentimes when people are getting into it, they'll have this loading period where they'll do, you know, let's say 20 grams per day for the first three days to get their stores up and then they'll maintain with let's say five grams per day, okay? In the scenario of a concussion, all of this stuff happens really quickly. You're hitting your your low state at that three to five day mark. So. To start supplementing with creatine after concussion, you'd have to start very, very quickly after, I would think. Anyway, we'll see when actual evidence comes out on this. is just my personal um, you know thoughts on it. So I think what we're going to find with this is that the optimal protective effect of creatine is going to be to have adequate stores before the injury occurs. And it's similar to magnesium, right? Like I just said, calcium gets into the mitochondria and gums up the works in terms of creating ATP. Calcium and magnesium compete with each other uh, for kind of binding sites. So if your levels of magnesium are high, you prevent the same level of calcium from getting in potentially so magnesium is one of those things that could be a protective effect I think creatine is going to be found to be along those lines as well the good thing about creatine is that it's safe it's effective there's there's no but well, safe I shouldn't say it's effective yet but it's safe there's no real side effects to it uh, sometimes it creates some GI symptoms for people like loose stools things like that same with magnesium can do that but Ultimately, it has a very, very high safety profile and it's not going to hurt and it may help. So if there's three supplements, I know we have a lot of you know, professional fighter MMA people, a lot of professional athletes that follow us and watch these podcasts. If I'm, a, if I'm an athlete, knowing what I know right now and I'm going to take three things to help me from concussion potentially, it's going to be magnesium, creatine and fish oils. Those are, if I'm going to pick, those are my big three, I would say. Okay. I I, I mean, I should ask Dr. Herkel what he thinks, uh, what his big three would be. And maybe we'll have him on again to talk about that. But right now in my mind, big three would be fish oils, magnesium, and creatine. Again, not a lot of human trials on any of these, but I think we're starting to realize that these particular types of supplements have what's called a pleiotropic effect. They're able to influence multiple pathways and help in a variety of ways that are affected by concussion, so it makes theoretical sense that they would work, and some of the animal trials on this, at least in the preliminary, have been showing that there is positive effect there. We need that replicated in human trials. Question? I saw you feverishly writing back there. Uh, possible effects. Um, I don't know why or how that would work. Generally, cervicogenic, uh, so the, anyway, I'll read the question. Any possible effects of hyperbaric being helpful for cervicogenic component of PCS? I don't know why, unless there was actual like tissue injury that could be healed. I think a lot of times the cervicogenic effect of PCS is more dysfunction rather than true tissue injury right it's not like most of the time it's it's not necessarily like a a torn muscle in your neck that needs to be healed most of the time it's dysfunction is that your neck doesn't move right the signaling pathways from the muscles are all screwed up because the 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 muscle spindles and the tendon organs are telling your brain mixed messages that you know certain muscles are tighter than they actually are and certain things are shortened and whatever else Generally what you need for the PCS component, the cervicogenic component, is you need treatment. You need therapy, you need rehab and you need manual work to kind of work that tissue out, get things moving properly and get things back strengthened and rehabbed. And that will be way more effective than paying thousands of dollars to just sit in a tube and do nothing. That's my take on that. Next question. Ah. Those three supplements you talked about, are. I would say it's generally more of a an acute management thing so acutely I'm just trying to see how I can explain this well acutely you have an energy deficit the energy deficit in adults right which is what this helps if your magnesium levels are high you potentially prevent calcium from getting in you potentially then have less of an energy reduction which means maybe your recovery goes from you know this long to this long Okay, so that's acutely with magnesium. Same thing with creatine. You have adequate energy stores, you're replacing that. You're able to maybe compensate for the energy that you're losing over here because you have adequate stores over here, which again, maybe it takes it from this to this. Fish oil is more of a neuroprotective thing because it's a healthy fat for the brain. It's low in inflammation. So fish oil in the PCS chronic phase, yes. Magnesium, creatine, probably not likely to be as effective because energy levels drop, And in humans, it's been found to only be dropped for about 30 to 45 days. So beyond that, which most PCS patients are, they're a year, two, three out, you're beyond the energy deficit. The energy deficit is not likely to be the driver of your symptoms. The main causes of the persistent symptoms are the autonomic nervous system dysregulation that I talked about, so your blood flow, right your sympathetic parasympathetic balance your heart rate variability which is your exercise your breathing your 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 meditation your even talk therapy things like that dealing with that type that component Uh, Number two is going to be um, uh, inflammation, which fish oils will help with, and also potentially hormone imbalances. Number three is your visual system and vestibular system. That's going to be rehab focused, treatment focused. Four is your cervical spine, so neck dysfunction causes the same symptoms as concussion symptoms. That's also going to be your rehab and your treatment. Uh, standpoint and then number five is the psychological component which then loops up back into number one which is autonomic nervous system dysregulation potentially it's stress anxiety those types of symptoms those types of things drive the same symptom presentation as c- post-concussion syndrome so i would say for pcs um not necessarily but i would talk to somebody who's more of more of an expert in that area than i am like i refer these types of patients to dr Herkel. Diet. Herkel. Is very effective. Um, I can't remember what, what's Herkel's Instagram handle. Is it Dr. Paul Herkel? I think so, yeah. Just just search Paul Herkel. He's got a ton of stuff on there, but he's he's an expert in this area for concussion and diet and stuff like that. I refer all my patients to him, and and because diet is a huge component, but it's mostly from an inflammation base, right? What I'm talking about here with creatine magnesium is actually affecting the pathophysiology. But with PCS, the pathophysiology is gone, and now you're onto the other stuff. So the other stuff, the inflammation, the hormones, the whatever—that's the stuff that diet can be helpful for. But it's different than just the supplements I'm talking about. If that makes sense. Um, I mean, it's a complex thing that I'm trying to do <laughs> verbally, but I probably should have a whiteboard. So I hope that I hope that answers your question. Um, if you have follow-up to that, you can always you know send me a message or something, and we can. We can try to figure something out. Okay. That's it for episode 57. See you guys later. Thank you for listening to the complete concussion management podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.